Hi, it's Effie, host of the show. I wanted to share an episode of another show from Eleanor Griffith at Gray Genetics. We had her on the podcast back on episode 17, where we chatted about the value of a genetic counselor. So go check it out if you haven't listened to it yet. She's the founder of Great Genetics and podcaster Wonder Woman. So here is a bonus episode for you this week where she interviews Rebecca Alexander, who is diagnosed with Usher syndrome type three. If you like this episode and adore Eleanor as much as I do, go subscribe to her show, Patient Stories. Everyone here at Patient Stories would like to thank you, our loyal listeners, for tuning in every other week. But we want to share the love. In order to do that, we need you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. With enough five-star reviews, you can help us to spread the word and share our stories with the world. And while you're at it, you might as well subscribe so you never miss an episode. Your daughter has something called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, and that she will be blind by the time she's an adult. I woke up with really loud ringing in my ears. He said, Rebecca, you don't just have RP, you have something called Usher syndrome. Because you have both progressive vision and hearing loss, it can't be anything else. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. I really rely on touch for a lot of things. I know the difference between the way things feel that maybe you know, a fully sighted person, fully hearing person might not. I have a much stronger sense of taste and smell. Silence is my religion. There's no way that I can describe to anybody what not having my ears on feels like. We can't possibly know or understand what it's like to live in anybody else's shoes. Try to develop comfort with the discomfort of imagining what it might be like to live with a disability. Rebecca Alexander is an award-winning author, psychotherapist, keynote speaker, group fitness instructor, disability advocate, and extreme athlete. She also has Usher syndrome type 3 and is almost completely blind and deaf. Her book, Not Fade Away, A Memoir of Senses Lost and Found, is being made into a major motion picture. So I just finished your memoir. I read it over the weekend and I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. And then it's always funny, like doing, um, interviewing you after reading your memoir, because I feel like I got to know you to a certain extent in a way, reading your memoir. And then I also know I have a huge jumpstart on most listeners, many of whom will never have heard of Usher syndrome. Um, so what do you tell people? What does it mean to have Usher syndrome and how did you receive that diagnosis? So basically my diagnosis came in stages. And when I was 12, I was having difficulty seeing the blackboard at school. And so I told my dad I thought I needed glasses and he took me to an optometrist and the optometrist said that his equipment wasn't sophisticated enough to identify what was in the back of my eye, but that he saw something. So he sent us to an ophthalmologist and we went to several ophthalmologists in the San Francisco Bay Area where I grew up. So we went to UCSF and we went to Stanford and at both institutions, facilities, they said that 
your daughter has something called retinitis pigmentosa or RP and that she will be blind by the time she's an adult. And so that was really the first indication that we had of the vision loss. And, you know, when I was younger, I had what they called a cookie bite of hearing loss because what we thought at the time was that I had frequent ear infections. And so from being on, um, you know, medication often as a child, they thought maybe that that had contributed to a cookie bite of hearing loss. And I think that for my mom, when I was taken to an audiologist early on, maybe I was about 10 or 11 to check out that cookie bite of hearing loss. Initially, they thought maybe there was a brain tumor and then they, you know, rechecked me and said, no, that's it. That's not a brain tumor. Um, but I think maybe the audiologist mentioned possibly something about Usher syndrome. But again, I never heard it and it was so far off and, and um, Usher syndrome was not so much on the map. Um, then that it was very, you know, uncommon, still an orphan disease, but it was certainly an orphan disease then. Um, So it wasn't until really, and, you know, I wore hearing aids um, in high school. I actually didn't wear them, let's be honest, but (laughs) I was, (laughs) I was given um, really a hearing aid for my right ear. My right ear was always my worst ear. And I had this funny quirk when I was growing up of watching the television out of sort of the side of my left eye. My my head was sort of cocked to the right. And I think we just thought that it was sort of a funny quirk. And I think now in hindsight, we obviously know that my left ear was always my much stronger ear. Mm-hmm. So I think it was sort of a self-imposed way of just hearing the TV better. Um, so when I finally... You know, and I really only wore uh, my hearing aid when I was in my AP history class as a senior in high school because I had a teacher who mumbled a lot. And so I would sort of sneak my hearing aid into my ear underneath my long hair so that nobody would see it. And then I would sneak it out of my ear as soon as class was over. So I really wasn't. And so I think we thought that that was still part of just that cookie bite of hearing loss. And, you know, it's hard for me to really know now because as as a teenager, you are so involved in friendships and, you know, everything that's happening in your social life and school. And there's so many other things that you're focusing on and really just trying to be normal that. Uh, I, I don't think I paid much attention to it. I just really, you know, did as much as I could to have somewhat of a normal life, if that makes sense. But so it wasn't until I was 19 and at the University of Michigan where I woke up with really loud ringing in my ears and it's known as tinnitus or tinnitus. There's no right or wrong way of saying it. But the sensation was that the ringing was so loud that I couldn't hear people speak to me over it. Mm. And after a couple of weeks, I would say of it not improving, um, initially it was so distracting and almost, it made me feel like I was sort of losing my mind because I couldn't get away from it. It's almost like hearing the most annoying sound in the world and then just never being able to get away from it. And that was how it felt, at least at the time. Mm -hmm. So I went to the medical campus and saw an otolaryngologist, which is sort of a more sophisticated 
uh, ear, nose and throat doctor. And he ran a series of tests and he said, Rebecca, you don't just have RP. You have something called Usher syndrome. We've never seen it as it presents itself in you. But because you have both progressive vision and hearing loss, it can't be anything else. And so when I was diagnosed with Usher syndrome type three, which is the type that I have, had not yet been identified. Or it, they they described it, but they didn't know um, which gene was risk, which genes were right. responsible for it. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And I I was curious because in your memoir, um, you, you know, you get your perspective, but not your parents' perspective as much. And I'm I wonder, have you talked to them about what it was like for them to get those diagnoses of hearing loss and vision loss for you, like RP? when you were 13, um, if that's something that they wanted to try to protect you from or just like what what they were going through at the time as parents? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there was a lot going on at the time. Uh, my parents had recently separated. They separated when I was 10 and uh, divorced probably at, at about the age of 12. So all of this was happening in the midst of me being taken out of school to have all of these tests done. And, you know, part of me at the time was thinking, oh, well, all of this just to get glasses, you know, but um, I don't think I really knew or they really knew. Maybe there was some part of me that wasn't uh, totally unhappy about not having to be in certain classes at school. So, you know, being taken out of school was sort of something that was like, oh, okay. I, I don't know that that was the way I would have wanted to spend the time. Uh, but I think for both of them, they had different approaches. You know, this is what's always interesting to me is that parents often have their own emotional responses to the diagnoses they receive for their children. And it's so difficult, I think, at times to be on the same page, to go through your own emotions and experiences of loss and grief and just processing that um, I, I think that they both, my mom really wanted to give me as much information as possible to let me sort of make decisions on, you know, how I wanted to live my life or have accommodations or what accommodations I needed or to know which accommodations were available to me. Even though at the time, for all intents and purposes, I was pretty much able to function close to as well as maybe somebody else in the class with, you know, the exception of if the lights were turned off, I obviously struggled with that. And if I was sitting too far away from, you know, the blackboard or whatever, um, or if, you know, at times I, I didn't hear things as well. But, you know, I, I guess so much of that was me just wanting to fit in with everybody else. And my dad really felt like if this is something that's not really seriously affecting her now. And what they told me early on was that, you know, RP affects primarily, first and foremost, your your night vision because it affects the retina. And mm. your retina is what processes light and tells your brain what you're seeing. So the less light you have, the less information you have the access to. So uh, I think my dad wanted to have all of the, you know, work or paperwork that was an information about RP, retinitis pigmentosa, and retinal degenerative diseases sent to his office so that it wouldn't be set home, so that I wouldn't see letters that said foundation fighting blindness on them and that stuff, you know. So I think my dad really wanted me to have as much normalcy as I could and to face sort of the difficulties or the challenges as they came, that to not overwhelm me with, um, you know, the word or the idea of going blind. And to be honest, I don't know how a 12-year-old who has always been able to see, you know, fairly well, 
how, how do you quite how do you process the idea that you will be blind as an adult being growing up seems like such a far off distant future that um, I think they both had their own approaches and I don't think one was better or worse than the other in fact I think um, I think it was a good combination for me to have both parents with with their own approaches and remember they were no longer they weren't married, so they they had uh, different. They had a lot of differences to begin with, and so this just sort of added to that. I think. Right. How did things change for you when you received that diagnosis for the second time when you were nineteen? You know, at that point, I was living in Michigan in Ann Arbor. I was a sophomore at the University of Michigan, and. The diagnosis I received was in really in the winter, so it was a very cold um, and wintry winters, the worst they'd had in you know some years or whatever. And uh, as you read in my memoir, I was in a very serious accident when I was 18 after I graduated from high school. That was actually my very sort of first experience with what it meant to live with a disability. And maybe we'll touch on that later. And if we don't, then I recommend people read my book. (laughs) But the transition for me of being a California girl moving to Michigan, Ann Arbor, and being in the thick of a very cold and wintry, snowy mess was that that in itself was a, a, a big transition. So to experience the tinnitus and the hearing loss and to be to get that diagnosis, I don't think, you know, I don't think that I could quite process the diagnosis at the time. And so I think I heard it. I don't think nobody knew, again, what my trajectory was going to be like. I mean, he said, this is Usher syndrome, but we don't don't know how it's going to progress. We've never seen it as it presents itself in you. So, but we do know that it causes deafblindness. So I think that I, you know, upped my game in terms of getting uh, better hearing aids or hearing aids that I was really going to start wearing. Because what I knew was that wearing hearing aids would help drown out the sound of the head noise or the tinnitus, and it did. And I think I also devised this superficial way of coping with this very overwhelming diagnosis that I couldn't wrap my head around. And I just figured that if I could make myself, as this was a lot of this actually came really, you know, I mean, this was 19 and, and 20. Uh, when this happened. And so I sort of over the, the that year and moving into my 21st year, I figured I wanted to make myself as academically perfect and physically perfect as possible so that nobody would know that there was anything wrong with me. But I think it was also under the guise that, you know, I'm turning 21 soon and I want to look my best and feel my best. And, oh, yeah, this is all again. <laughs> on the heels of um, having a very sort of serious breakup with my high school boyfriend. So there was just a lot of things that were compounding it and uh, a lot of factors in play as we always, we all have whatever our diagnoses are. It's not just that we have other things going on in our lives and they all come together and create sort of a perfect storm. Right. And as you alluded to before, like you're, you had a really serious accident that made you have to delay going to college at the University of Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. And I do recommend that everyone read your memoir, but I still <laughs> want to ask you about that. Um, <laughs> sure. I mean, it was such a tough experience that I feel like for, for you, it makes sense that that was like a big part of the context within which you were receiving this diagnosis, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when I was 18 and I was preparing to go off to college, it was, you know, basically um, I had an accident after my graduation graduation from high school and uh, it set me back and it meant that I had to stay home and recover and recuperate. I mean, I broke about just about every everything, not everything in my body, but enough so that the only thing that was actually functioning and able to be used was my right leg. And so I had I was in a wheelchair for, you know, four months and had to rehabilitate my my whole body. And while watching not only my twin brother, but all of my friends and, you know, my high school boyfriend and everyone go off to college and leave with me and it's interesting because you know I had the diagnosis of RP years before and I had a cookie bite of hearing loss and when my parents got divorced and this diagnosis came around the same time they sent me to see a therapist understandably so but I think that all of these things just further reinforced this belief that I had in myself that there was something fundamentally wrong with me I really thought that there was something wrong with me, that I was screwed up. And these all were just further reinforcements, affirmations or confirmations, really. They're not affirmations, but confirmations that that, yes, there was something really wrong with me that. And um, and so that that all of these things that happened somehow, maybe I felt like even though I didn't, of course, expect them. I don't know that I felt like I deserved them, but it, it definitely there was something about it that didn't feel it didn't feel so out of the ordinary because I think I expected it that somebody who has something fundamentally wrong with them would have these types of things happen. Hmm. And your accident, I mean, you fell 27 feet from your bedroom window and it seems like it was partly related to you know, just like alcohol at a high school party. It wasn't partly related. It was partly. definitely related. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but also, but also your, your eyesight, you know, yeah, both together. Yeah. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. And, you know, I've many times been able to try to meditate on that and try to understand what was happening. And I think that it was, uh, again, between, being waking up in the middle of the night and being so out of it from drinking too much the night before, you know, I was an 18 year old and uh, just didn't, didn't know better, unfortunately. And so I think that I was still, I was so disoriented that presumably I was going for my bedroom door to go to the bathroom and I was stumbling around. And instead of going for my bedroom door, I went for my bedroom window and um, it's hard for me to really know how much my vision played into it because I was still pretty intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you were at the University of Michigan, um, you mm-hmm. had a really strong advocate within disability services. Um, Who's mm-hmm. Joni, right? And it seems like Joni. Yeah. In reading your memoir, it seemed like she was the first person, um, or maybe, you know, first person who wasn't like part of your family, someone you were already close to who really made you realize like, no, you're a person who has disabilities and you have some legal rights to receive certain assistance. That it's not that there's something wrong with you, but there are like services that you need and that you're entitled to. Um, right. Can you can you talk more about um, meeting with her and the services you received and how your feelings kind of evolved around those services? Sure. So my parents were obvious were were always big advocates for me. Uh, certainly, 
you know, I think they, and, and they did the, as much as they could. And it was a lot of the resistance was from me and, you know, not from them. But uh, when I got to the University of Michigan, this was the first time, you know, it was, it was a huge change for me. I was finally fully recovered. I started college, detoured and started at UC Santa Barbara, just so that I could, once I was recovered enough to attend school, but not recovered enough that I could be that far away from my doctors, that I, I just wanted to, you know, get going and was always very motivated to get back on track. So when I made that transition from Santa Barbara to the University of Michigan, Joni was the deaf and hard of hearing student um, disability services um, director. And before I got there, you know, this is people can't even remember this time, but this is where you you stood in line to register for your classes or <laughs> you had to call, you know, I mean, the Internet had just started and it wasn't the Internet. This was just email that we had. And it was dial up where you sat there and just waited. And everybody who was around at that time, you know, in the late nineties remembers the sound of dial up yeah. uh, internet, you know, so bring, bring a book anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she stood in line to make sure that I, because this was before I was going to be arriving at uh, Michigan to make sure that I got the classes that I needed to you know start at Michigan and she stood in line for me and this was something that like I couldn't even imagine somebody doing for me uh, let alone you know that somebody would be that much of an advocate someone who hadn't even met me and so when we started working with her and she was asking me what my needs were I don't even think I knew what I my needs were so much I think I knew that you know in high school I was given extended time on tests but I was afraid to even appear differently. I think that I, it was still in this transition or in this place of being in between sighted and hearing to being visually impaired and hearing impaired. Mm -hmm. So I not only learned so much from her, but I also gained so much um, of the advocacy skills that I now sort of employ in my daily life. And I am so eternally grateful to her, but what she taught me was and oftentimes for many people with any type of disability, when you approach a professor and you ask them for, you know, you tell them that you are the visually impaired or the hearing impaired or whatever your needs are student, and you ask them to make any accommodations for you, everybody's first instinct generally is no. Because when people don't like change, they don't like uncertainty, they don't like unfamiliarity, and they like to have a sense of control. And so when you ask someone for something, essentially it feels like that's being threatened. And so she sort of taught me that when I asked professors, you know, listen, I need a note taker for my classes, if you're willing to, and, and um Actually, you know what? I'm getting Columbia and Michigan <laughs> I'm confused here. <laughs> they, they actually, it was yeah, a that's a later part of the conversation. The, yeah, it was such a stark contrast. Yeah. Too. I was really surprised, um, you know, just to hear that you were at Columbia and they didn't have that level of services at all, especially just a major university in New York with a great reputation where you're enrolled like for a social work program. It just seems like obviously <laughs> they would be in yeah. tune with, with those needs. Yeah. So basically at Michigan, they set up all of the note takers. They had uh, a cart provider, computer assisted real time, which is basically like having a court reporter. And there's a computer in front of you that puts up all of the, you know, essentially is just transcribing everything that's being said in the class. 
note takers for, you know, notes so that I could pay attention and wouldn't miss things if I needed to read lips. I mean, you name it. If I needed an interpreter, it was just a very, very supportive and um, and just an incredibly positive experience. And that taught me so much about advocating not what were I maybe believed were privileges, but were my rights. They taught me what my rights were and not to be ashamed to ask for those rights. And not only not to be ashamed for it uh, of it, but also to ask and to advocate in ways that I'd never really felt comfortable doing before. So that was life-changing for me and hugely instrumental in sort of helping me develop my voice as an advocate generally for myself and for others. And so uh, certainly it was a, a very stark contrast to what I experienced when I attended Columbia for graduate school. Yeah, it seems like what you learned at University of Michigan was like essential to get you through Columbia and then helped you change the the culture at Columbia around disabilities also. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, I think that I didn't realize that how incredibly special and unique the University of Michigan was in their disability services program. I think I assumed that these services would be available for me at Columbia or anywhere I went for that matter. And I was, I was very seriously wrong. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Great Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. How has the way you rely on and appreciate your other senses changed as you've gradually lost your eyesight and your hearing? I know in your memoir, you, 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 know, you, you mentioned quite a bit um, different smells like the flowers in the hospital room or that your favorite sound is like running water. Um, but yeah, how, how, how is that? change for you? How does it keep on changing? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting now because I early was given uh, hearing aids and now I'm cochlear implanted. And so even now, you know, without my cochlear implants, my cochlear implants have dramatically improved the quality of my ability to hear and my life, I would say. I also, you know, learned sign language and then later tactile sign language, which is the language of the deaf and the deaf blind. So it, that was uh, maybe topic for, um, for later. But uh, for me, I started to really have to rely on my other senses because the point of me mentioning the cochlear implants is that without them, I am completely deaf. I mean, my dog could be barking right next to me. And unless we she's sitting on the bed next to me and I feel the vibrations of her barking, I won't hear her. I mean, you could have a marching band come through my room and I wouldn't hear it. Uh, and I feel vibrations, but that would be it. And um, I mean, nobody sleeps better than I do in New York City, let's be clear. But <laughs> but still, uh, it's really required me to learn how to rely on my other senses. And I don't think that it has necessarily even been so purposeful. I think that, you know, people always say, well, when you lose certain senses, your other senses get stronger. And 
I, I think that um, that's true, but I don't know that it's something that I've necessarily worked on so much as it just sort of organically happened. And so I really rely on touch for a lot of things. I know the difference between the way things feel that maybe, you know, a fully sighted person, fully hearing person might not. I really rely on my sense of smell, certainly my sense of taste. I mean, the difficulty is now that because my sense of smell and taste are so acute, the foods that I eat have become more limited. Meat tastes much more fleshy to me. I've never really been a meat eater. I've always been sort of an animal lover anyway, but even still, you know, for the sake of getting protein and trying to have a balanced diet, I, I would eat some meats and I eat fish because it's good for my eyes. But even still, it's it can be it tastes very different to me now than it used to. I have a much stronger sense of taste and smell. And, and my sense of smell is interesting because I know perfumes and colognes very well, which is not necessarily a skill that's useful in any way, except <laughs> it can be fun party conversation. Uh, but uh, oftentimes, you know, I've had uh, patients in the past who have told me that they've quit smoking. And I remember I had someone who was really adamant about quitting smoking and he'd, you know, struggled to stop smoking and finally had had about a month or two of abstinence from smoking completely. And he came into my office and I sort of had this very faint, I could smell a very faint smell of of cigarettes on him. And, you know, I was sort of wondering whether I should address it or not. And I said, you know, I, I have to tell you, when you walked in, I sort of picked up this very faint smell of cigarettes. And this was, I believe, on a Tuesday. And he said, I, I had a cigarette on very late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, mm -hmm. you know, when he was out with friends. And so the fact that I could still smell that on him, I have no idea how or why, but I could. And um, it was just interesting to our process, you know, as his psychotherapist to kind of hold him accountable. And anyway, so it comes in handy and it's also <laughs> very bizarre. And certainly living in New York City in the middle of the summer when it is really hot out and there's garbage on the street, it is not a pleasant experience. Yeah, I know you mentioned that in your in your memoir. And I also live in New York and it's just, I think we're the only, like the only city in a like a rich country that thinks it's normal to just set a bunch of garbage and heaps on the street <laughs> for pickup <laughs> yeah. um, really disgusting so yeah like move, yeah anyone who moves here like in the hot summer is just like oh like even for someone with just like not a very strong sense of smell it's just like absolutely disgusting <laughs> totally totally yeah so as you gradually lost your hearing, you became more connected to the deaf community. And you talk a lot in your memoir about um, learning sign language and a little bit about tactile sign. Um, and I, I found it interesting, your your description of how um, sign language is a much more direct language and also just mm -hmm. your point that you have to be fully present to use it. You can't be kind of on your phone, sort of half listening to someone, multitasking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I feel like it's, it's pretty unique to really be part of both worlds um, and mm -hmm. to kind of make that transition over and then maybe back a little bit with the cochlear implants. Um, and then I'm also interested just, you know, people sometimes talk about thinking a little bit differently or having a little bit different personality in a different language. And if you find that that's true at all for you when you're, you know, just speaking like English as opposed to like American sign language or tactile sign, how different that feels. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. 
basically, I, I started learning sign language at the University of Michigan because it was offered as a pilot course. And part of me was very curious. I wanted to learn the language. I always thought it was fascinating to watch people sign. We had a friend when I was growing up uh, who had a little sister who was deaf and her family signed with her. And I always hated that I couldn't communicate with her directly, that I had to communicate with her through her sister, her brother or her mom. And so, and I think that maybe there was some part of me that never didn't know if I would actually ever have to use sign language. But again, Joni Smith, who was the most incredible advocate and mentor to me, made sure that I was put in that pilot course because I was someone who could really benefit from learning sign language. And I really loved the language. And at the time, again, I was no longer, I didn't feel like I lived, I, I was a hearing person. I, I definitely wasn't a deaf person, but I just was in this gray area of not really knowing where I belonged anymore. I had I struggled in social situations to really hear people. Um, and so for me, it was just it was the best thing that I could have done for myself, even though I didn't realize at the time how much I would become assimilated into the deaf community. And part of what I love the deaf about the deaf community, which is what you mentioned, is that it is so direct. You know, historically deaf community never had, we didn't, they didn't have the ability to communicate via telephones. I mean, they had TTYs, but that was somewhat of a laborious process. And so when they made plans, again, to get together and be social, it, there wasn't, you didn't call someone and say, hey, this actually doesn't work for me. You really relied on those times when you would get together and you didn't have the ease to communicate as easily with, you know, or effectively with telephones. And so that lack of access, I think, historically really sort of contributed to this very direct way of communicating. And it is so refreshing because as hearing people, you know, you may see someone who you're friendly with and say, hey, you know, we should really go grab coffee. Okay, great. Reach out, you know, shoot me a text and we'll plan it. And of course, you never plan it and, and don't even really want to do it in the first place. And it's so, so devoid of those types of uh, nuances and, and kind of superficiality that it's, it's actually very uh, refreshing, as I mentioned. But in terms of personality, you know, I think that oftentimes people see deaf people and they see how expressive they are. And they think that people who are deaf who communicate through ASL or sign language are uh, really intense or dramatic. And the reality is, is that all the grammar in sign language revolves around the face. So the difference between saying, how would you sign to someone that you're tired and how would you sign to someone that you are exhausted, right? And right. so the way that you sign that comes with your facial expressions. It comes with, so there's so much more that you use the same way that you would uh, want to um, make a make a statement in, in English or any spoken language. You do it differently and you really use your face for for your grammar. So I would say that in sign language, as much as I'm outgoing, I think as, as a hearing person, certainly in sign language, I am very expressive. And I think that when you see someone who's signing and they're not very expressive, it's sort of like having an accent mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in spoken language. When you see someone who doesn't really use their facial expressions and who isn't sort of very emotive, uh, that is oftentimes an indication that this is not a natural signer or someone who it, it's, it really is sort of the only way I can describe it is sort of like having an accent. Could it, could it also be like, uh, like, let's say a grumpy kid that doesn't want to give their mother an answer. Would they, <laughs> would they have a similarly non-expressive, um, manner or totally different? 
maybe, you know, maybe, I mean, I think that a kid who's trying to ignore their mom, whether they're hearing or deaf, maybe, but certainly the way that they respond, um, you know, would be very expressive. I mean, it would be their way of sort of maybe yelling or screaming like a kid only using, you know, their, their signs and, you know, maybe stomping and, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so from your, in your memoir, you, you really latched onto sign language really early and you had some early exposure to Braille. Um, but at least when I was reading in the memoir, it doesn't seem like that's something that you really picked up on. I'm wondering like, is Braille, has Braille become more a part of your life as you continue to lose your eyesight or just with being able to hear so much better with the cochlear implants and audiobooks and podcasts? Have you kind of shifted over to how you enjoy um, reading now? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a couple of things, first of all, so learning Braille for the first time. And when I, it was a free service that was offered through the department of rehabilitation in California. And I thought, again, it was a cool skill to be able to learn, uh, very quickly realize that it's, that it was very, it's very difficult to learn it uh, as someone who has always used, relied on her vision. And I also think that I wasn't ready uh, because the person who was assigned to me was a blind woman and it was too difficult for me at that time. You know, I was what, 21 years old maybe, but to be in the face um, most literally and figuratively of blindness at a time when I was really still struggling with coming to terms with with my condition and what was happening to me was just too difficult. Uh, interestingly, you know, children oftentimes when they're losing their vision or when they have something like RP or Usher syndrome, they often learn or people often learn the Braille cells first by sight. And then they learn it by uh, tactile, by feeling huh. it. So I, I wish that, and of course we couldn't have known this, and or we didn't know. I wish that I'd learned Braille from an early age because I think I would have been able to learn it, you know, much more easily than than now. I only recently started teaching myself Braille, and. It's, you know, now there's a lot more access in terms of having the resources to self-teach uh, how to learn it. So I'm starting. It's definitely a slow process. You know, the, uh, you know now I'm sort of at first just sort of trying to learn it just by seeing it and then moving into feeling for it, um, which, you know, everybody has a different way of doing it. But but feeling the cells themselves and, re and learning how to try, try to train your fingers to feel for the cells, it's not a skill that I've had to rely on before. And the cells are so small that it's, it's just something that um, really takes time and effort. So I am trying to do that. You know, interestingly, I don't listen to audiobooks so much. I still, I have different devices, uh, not devices, but really apps and programs that I use like Bookshare and Spotlight Gateway that uh, inverts the colors and also uh, has very large print for me to read. I've always loved reading. Uh, it's been very relaxing for me. And as soon as I get home at the end of the day, you know, as amazing and wonderful as cochlear implants have been for me, there is nothing I love more than taking my ears off. It's sort of silence, as I mentioned in my memoir, silence is my religion. It is the, it is like, there's no way that I can describe to anybody what not having my ears on feels like. 
and it is a godsend. It really allows me to focus. It allows me to not be easily distracted. I don't have to worry about hearing a jackhammer out on the street or a siren or, you know, so it really just helps me hone in on and focus on whatever the task is that I'm working on. And even if I have someone, a patient cancel last minute and I have work to get done, I will take my ears off to do that work. And it is, it's really just makes such a difference. It's so much uh, easier for me to focus than when I'm, when I'm hearing, so to speak. So I do think that it would be good for me to start listening to books, audiobooks, but uh, it's just a, something I've always loved to do reading, you know, with my vision. And so now that I, I have, you know, about 10 degrees of my central most vision that is pretty usable and particularly with very large print uh, on an inverted screen, uh, I really enjoy that still. Yeah. Yeah. And your your memoir was published in 2014. So I was, you know, I was wondering as I was reading it, like what had happened in the interim. So you um, at the end of the memoir, you just gotten your first cochlear implant in your right ear. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you've since gotten a second one in your left ear. Yeah. So I got my second cochlear implant in 2017. And it's funny because, you know, my memoir now feels like, like so long ago. Um, I mean, I think that, and it's so nice when I hear that people have read it and, and that things resonate with them. And I also feel like I'm so much further along in terms of, so many things with accepting the use of, you know, my cane and, and developing comfort with so many things about vision and hearing loss and also going through tremendous loss and mourning, which I don't think we hear enough about, uh, in general, we hear about it in terms of death, I think, and we hear about it in terms of losing loved ones and our own sort of mortality, but we don't hear about so much of the loss in the morning that we experience when we are ex- experiencing it in a degenerative way. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I'm cochlear implanted now on my left side as well. And interestingly, my right ear was always my weakest ear. It was sort of decorative. It could wear earrings, but it couldn't really discriminate a lot of language and sound so much before. And then after I was cochlear implanted, so I had about 28% discrimination with a hearing aid in my right ear before I was implanted. And without a hearing aid, I had 26% discrimination. So clearly the the hearing aid was not doing me much good. And so after a tremendous amount of listening therapy, I was up somewhere between about 92 to 98%, depending on words or sentences, um, you know, when I was tested. And that is dramatic. It's life-changing. And so my right ear became my dominant ear. And it's interesting because everybody for my whole life always walked on my left side, sat on my left side, spoke into my left ear, And so that adjustment of everybody having to move to my right side was a big one. And even now when I'm speaking to you, we're speaking through my right ear, which, you know, for 34 years of my life was never possible. So even to this day, I remind myself just how incredibly fortunate I am um, or what a life changing experience it has been for me to get cochlear implanted. But that is it's a very personal decision. And um, but it is one for me growing up as a hearing person that I think was was right, particularly because of my vision loss. Yeah. You talk in the in your memoir about it being so hard when you initially got it, at least to just adjust to people's voices sounding so different and mm-hmm. artificial and like 
just kind of anticipating the loss of the sound of someone's voice. How how Mm -hmm. does that change for you? Is it something, it wasn't clear to me, I don't know, is that something that you adjust to and your mind kind of fills in what it's supposed to sound like? Or does the sound like actually change for you? Or wait, yeah, what has that been like? You know, right. So the process is, I mean, people sometimes call it a journey and whatever. And I don't use, I don't like using very sort of like... (laughs) (laughs) An inspirational poster. Sort of spiritual sounding like words because it, to me, sure, it's a journey, but it's a lot of hard work. So if a journey is, is putting in tremendously hard work, then sure, uh, it's a journey. But it, you know, the difference between what you hear when you are first turned on, when you're first activated with your implant, even to the next day, even by that evening is, is, is different. I mean, it's, it's even dramatic. And so there's a mapping process we go through or programming basically. And so each time you go in and early on when you're first implanted and after you get activated, you go in more frequently and they give you access to more range of sounds people's voices now sound like their voices. I can recognize anybody's voice from my mom's, from my best friends to, you know, anybody, um, my, my nieces, my brothers. Uh, but again, you know, everybody's experience is going to be different based on how much hearing they had before they were implanted. You know, um, people think that if you're deaf and at the age of 25, you decide you want to become hearing, you can get cochlear implanted. And that is absolutely not the case. You do have to be a candidate. You do have to, hearing is an auditory skill that you learn at a very early age. And if you never develop that skill, you know, many people I know who are deaf and unfortunately have felt tremendous pressure or have felt tremendous either shame or feelings of wanting to be able to be a hearing person in some way did get implanted and never wear their implants because they were never able to really discriminate sounds or they could, you know, tell you that a siren was coming, but they couldn't tell you the difference between a dog barking and water running or steps or a clock ticking, you know, that just those were were sounds that they could never learn to really discriminate because they'd never had the auditory skills. They'd never built the muscle for it. Uh, so, um, But for me, I I was an ideal candidate because I was fortunate enough to have been born with relatively normal hearing and to to develop speech. So it was certainly very much worthwhile for for me to to get cochlear implanted. And there's a lot of listening therapy of having people read to you. It can feel very laborious, but it is incredibly worth it, uh, I think. So yeah, but but sounds now, and you know, our brain is is incredible. It's able, it's so malleable, and able to really change and adjust based on, you know, the things that we do to help support ourselves. Is there anything specific that you wish that people understood about Usher syndrome, or since it is a rare disease, maybe just about the deaf and blind communities more generally? You know, that's such a, a big question, and <laughs> our our community, <laughs> yeah. Our community is so vast and wide, and I think that partially I have, you know, a message to the community. I mean, we have people who were did not have the access to the to the resources, uh, or were were raised in a family where they 
were raised culturally deaf and are going blind. And so the access for them, I think that what I guess my biggest message to sort of the general public, first of all, about having a rare disease is that we can't possibly know or understand what it's like to live in anybody else's shoes. Mm. But we can try to imagine what it would be like if we didn't have the access to all of the things that we don't even think twice about having access to. And that is our phones, uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the internet, looking anything up, um, anything that, that you sort of take for granted. Imagine if you didn't have your vision and your hearing or the ability to do the things with as much ease and mindlessness that you do them. And how might you want to be treated or what type of accommodations would you need? And it's easy for people to say, oh yeah, you know, I would want people maybe to read to me or I would want, I mean, there are any number of sort of superficial things that we can come up with. But I think that unless you have been affected by someone, by either your own rare disease or your own disability or your own adversity in your life or have been closely related to it, either with someone you love or you're related to, that you can't really understand just how much work goes into trying to live your life in a world that, you know, as much as we are doing everything we can to create inclusivity and accessibility, there are tremendous barriers. And the barriers exist, yes, in sort of institutional ways, but they exist in our minds. And so if we believe that things aren't possible or if we're not flexible or willing to make things possible, then they certainly will not be able to be changed on a structural and institutional level. And so I really ask people to try to develop comfort with the discomfort of imagining what it might be like to live with a disability or imagining what it might be like for uh, anyone who is trying to have access to the very basic of things that they enjoy, but they can't, not because they're not smart enough, not because they're not capable of it, but because the system is not set up to provide them with the information that they need in order to live independent and successful lives. Yeah. And I, I know in your memoir, you mentioned a few times where like someone would say to you that you didn't look disabled. And yeah. I, I wonder if, if you think maybe does that come from maybe that attitude of people not wanting to imagine themselves with a disability and thinking that someone with a disability must, you know, be so foreign to them. Um, well, but what does a person with a disability look like? Right. And so that's another preconceived idea that we have to to develop. I mean, really, to me, that's more about ignorance. We think that when someone says that they're visually impaired, we don't even really know what that means when you say someone's low vision or visually impaired or blind. You know, I mean, I often tell when I give talks, um, you know, to different groups, they, I try to educate them even about like canes, that when you see someone with red reflective tape at the end of their cane, generally that means or is indicative of them being low vision, meaning they have some usable vision. We don't know how much or how little and when they're sort of best able to use it, but it does mean that they have some vision that maybe they're not completely blind. And, you know, I think that when someone says that they're visually impaired, they may be able to read large print, but they can't read fine print. They may be able to see certain colors and not others. There's such a, 
you know, just like any community, just like any circumstance, I think of everything on a spectrum and being deaf or being blind and having deaf blindness, that is also on a spectrum, meaning how much you're able to see and how much you're able to hear and what strategies or what techniques or what tools and skills you use given what you have and what you don't have in order to, again, be independent. And I think for so many of us, the the biggest thing we struggle with, and this is particular for everybody, but particularly uh, for people who are developing more need to rely on the help from others, we have such a hard time asking for help. Mm -hmm. Because in some way, we believe that when you ask for help, that you are saying that I'm not capable. And yet, when you ask someone for help, you're not only letting them know that they're needed, you're letting them know that they matter. And I think that there's nothing we want more in this world than to know first and foremost, than that we matter, that we're needed. And so I almost think that when I ask people for help, instead of feeling like I'm a burden, I'm not saying, can you do this for me? I'm saying, do you mind telling me if this is 21st street or 22nd street? You know, and they're happy to be able to make that clarification for me because they know that it's helpful. And I've made their day a little bit better knowing that they've helped someone with a disability. So it's sort of, you know, there's a synchronicity about it, I think. Um, And there's a really that to me is sort of the essence of humanity. When, you know, you ask someone to help you even across the street and when you help someone across the street, there is that moment of connection that's, you know, very rare um, and so meaningful, I think. Yeah. Is there is there anything about the process of becoming deaf and blind um, or the experience of it that you believe for a long time would be true? That's just you realized is wrong or where the experience has been completely different from what you'd expected? I don't think I had any idea what to expect. I certainly have friends who are further along in terms of their vision loss than I am. And I think the hardest thing is having friends of mine who um, are blind now or who uh, have less vision than I do hearing about their experiences of, you know, I I bring so many different types of glasses with me. I bring reading glasses with me. I bring different sunglasses with me, depending on the environment. And I remember a dear friend of mine who has a guide dog and now is completely blind. I remember him telling me when I told him about all the glasses I bring and him saying to me, oh my gosh, at the end, it was almost relieving to go blind so that I no longer had to carry all of this extra equipment with me (laughs) and, you know, have to, and to now be in that place, you know, to be in a place where people sort of remember being, and I am now in that place. It's incredibly humbling. uh, And it's very difficult to sort of, I don't think that I had any way of anticipating or knowing what going blind would feel like. I don't think any of us, no matter how many people tell us what their experience has been like it is such a personal experience um, and it is incredibly humbling and I have to tell you that going blind is a very difficult experience and I, I think that there is tremendous gratitude that you find in it particularly when you find a community that supports you and when you have friends who support you and when you learn how to advocate for yourself but it's different to be born without something and to be losing it, um, I, I think. So uh, what I can say is that for people who are going through it, most importantly, that they're not alone, that you are not alone in what you face when you go through this because it can feel tremendously lonely. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. 
Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.